Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, the shark, babe. Has such teeth, dear, and it shows them pearly white. So welcome everybody Just to this latest episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark, and Matt Macklin. Hope everybody is well. By the time you listen to this, it'll be a few days ago. But um, over the weekend, I was at Daniel Dubois against Bogdan Dinu, and, and the reason I bring it up is because it's the first time I've been at a fight night since all of this started, really, where you've had a vocal crowd. We had some some fans in for AJ against Pulev, but at the Telford International Centre last Saturday, it was something else. A thousand fans. And the noise hit me when I walked in at about half past six. And it was weird because it kind of shocked me. You're used to walking into this very sterile atmosphere and environment, almost like a museum at times, particularly early in the night. And, and the noise hit me. And... I just loved it. I loved every single second of it. Well, one of the reasons why it was so atmospheric and so good is because I saw and heard one of the best ring walks I've ever seen. Nathan Heaney, if you don't know the name, many of you will have seen one of his ring walks from the King's Hall in, in Stoke um, that went kind of viral on Twitter about a year ago now. But he had 600 fans in from Stoke. He can sell a lot more tickets than that. And they're Stoke City fans. And the Stoke City song is Tom Jones's Delilah. And the way they get into that when he comes out is unbelievable. And he's got his kind of moves choreographed to, to time with certain words in the song. They all know the words. I'm not going to say it's like listening to some kind of choir because it's not. Um, but it's just tremendous. Absolutely amazing. You know, it's like hair standing up on the back of your neck kind of stuff. Um, God, it was good to be back with with that kind of atmosphere. Uh, and that's not going to be too far away for us for us over here over here as well. So I just wanted to mention him because I, we actually saw him afterwards in the pub just up the road, um, still in his kit with his hand wraps on because he'd been going around thanking the fans, getting onto the coaches, having a chat with everybody and he couldn't find any scissors. Um, so yeah, it was brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. But on to today's episode. 
And today, these are our kind of favourite kinds of episodes, really, because we're talking to a boxing insider today. We love talking to boxing insiders, and we've had numerous characters on the podcast. Generally, they've been in and around UK boxing, but today we're going international because the man we have with us is... I mean, he's a little bit of an international man of mystery, to be honest with you. He's kind of a a Winston Wolf character, a manager, fixer, agent, chameleon, as he just described himself to us. Uh, That's what he's needed to be, he said, to survive in this industry. Is he a Kaiser Sose figure? Well, who knows? Because none of us ever really know who Kaiser Sose is. I think most people will get that reference. He's currently in lockdown uh, in his hometown of Melbourne, because that's the conditions that have been imposed on them in recent times. And he's headed into that off the back of two weeks of quarantine after go, going back to Australia from the UK. So he's had a crushingly dull time of it uh, the last little while. It's Mike Altamura. Big man, how are you? I'm great. And thank you for that lovely introduction. I've got to say, while I'm sitting here waiting in the introduction, I'm admiring them books in your background. And I'm trying to figure out which ones I actually don't have. So I reckon I'm at about a... A 60% clip on the boxing books of what I possess. However, I've got a book here I know you definitely don't have, which is uh, Fighter Lady by uh, Bev Will. So Bev Will was a groundbreaking journalist in Australia, uh, one of the first female fight journalists in the 60s and 70s. And she worked under the umbrella of uh, Fighter Magazine, editor Mike Ryan. Now, the reason I mentioned that is that Mike Ryan's a man I owe a lot of credit to. He's one of my early mentors in boxing. And the kind of man that he was is the kind of person that would give a woman a chance in boxing in the 60s and 70s when, and, and gave her, he empowered her to go out, cover the fights, cover the sport as she wanted to. So I have a copy of that book, and that's one I'll definitely be sending you away so that you can check it out sometime. No, that'd be great. That'd be great. And that right there is, is is a snapshot into the into the man we're talking to here, because not many people will have that book. I guarantee you of that. And Mike is uh, the breadth of knowledge when it comes to pro boxing, facts and figures, as well as behind the scenes, but also the amateur scene is it's it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. Um, so let's have a bit of a life and times of uh, of Michael Altamura, because you have been in this sport for a long time now across all levels of it, really, in all instances, um, you've seen and heard a lot of things. So just, just take, us, take us through it. How did, you get, how did you get into it? Because one thing we, we always love hearing about here is, is how people get into boxing, because it is, this, it is this kind of Wild West, unregulated sport. Everybody starts with, with the passion of, of just loving the sport, but then when you move into the professional side, you know, you're into... Uh, you're into a different kind of shark tank. So how did it all get underway for you? Well, I was born and raised effectively into the industry. So my dad was a former prize fighter. He only had about 15 fights. And then he worked as a trainer. So he retired when he was 22 years of age, worked as a trainer, but just part-time, you know, had other businesses. So shoemaker by trade, but he always stayed involved in the fight game. So before I was born, because I was born in 83. So that's not a mystery. You say I'm a mystery, but we've got too, too many mysteries. Uh, before I was born, he'd finished up training. But through to like, say, mid-70s to about 80, 81, he was very involved in assisting to coach the Australian national team. And he actually, he produced a kid, Paul Grozzi, who made the 1980 Olympics. 
And then with the boycott and everything and the limited funding, they cut the squad from five to three and they didn't send them. And I think that that took a lot of my dad's heart out of the sport at that point in time. And so he took a break. Like when I was growing up, I used to always hear things, you know, like, you know, my dad used to always say, oh, you, you got to be tough. You got to be tough like a fighter and that. But it wasn't until probably, I'd say like when I was maybe three, four years of age, I remember hearing my eldest brother talk with excitement about going to watch Porky Brook fight, uh, Graham Porky Brook, former Commonwealth lightweight champion. So like the first fighter I heard about wasn't Hagler, it wasn't Leonard, it wasn't Tyson, it was Graham Porky Brook, who was you know, a, a very solid fighter, only lost to high level competition until his, um, his career ended prematurely. And second fighter I knew about, the first fighter I idolized was Lester Ellis. So he was the uh, IBF 130 uh, pound world champion. 1985 but then thereafter he was ranked number one in the bc at 130 one, uh, 135 140 for a number of years so i remember being at an event around 88 89 and my dad taking me across to meet lester and you know you, you see these guys and they're superhuman on tv and then i remember just thinking to myself like what a lovely fella he was like what a what a good-hearted what a kind-hearted man he was it's just like no semblance of ego. And so it was probably like, you know, off and on, you got to think back then, there's no internet or anything. It's just whatever pops up on TV, whatever pops up in the newspaper or that. I always stayed around the sport. And I was also a, um, a big pro wrestling fan. And I can identify it to the day because I remember there was a, um, there was a magazine out here summarizing James Tony's beatdown of Iran Barkley. And so that's what 93, 94, thereabouts. And that's that's the first ever boxing magazine I purchased with my own money. So I saved my own money, bought the magazine, started reading and started getting intrigued. And then my friends at school, I used to piece together like in a, it was the worst magazine of all time, but it was like an eight page magazine, four pages wrestling, four pages boxing. And I would, um, what I'd do is I'd get the photos from the boxing magazines I'd purchased. So say there's a picture of Matt Macklin. 20 cents, take it to the photocopier, cut it out, and then write my piece on, on Matt Macklin around that. So that kind of got the ball rolling of, okay, well, you know, I must really love this sport. You know, and I remember I was always like thirsting for knowledge. Like I would, I would beg, as soon as my brother turned 18, I would beg him to take me to the pub to watch the live fights, the fights on, on um, delay that used to be on Sky Channel. Because like back then in Australia, you had Sky Channel essentially was a horse racing channel but once it hit like evening it switched off and it, and it blocked off into just general sports so like twice a week they would have 30 minutes of boxing so I used to just beg him to take me there and then I remember like it's like late 1994 so I was 11 and I was starting to get to know the local amateur scene really well and it was just kind of you know my dad put me on the phone one day with Ray Wheatley so Ray Wheatley was formerly one of the vice presidents of the IBF, but he also had a magazine called The World of Boxing. And, you know, he, my dad's telling Ray, you know, my son knows the fighters better than anyone and all this. And Ray says to me, he goes, you know, would you, would you care to write a column? So I'm like, I'm like 11. I can barely structure my name together at that point in time. And I was like, yeah, I'm down for that. So like, it wasn't any, look, it wasn't Shakespeare, but it was essentially the result. And then like one line on each bout. 
and that was it. And it was, you know, I'd cover the, the amateurs for Ray. And I guess that kind of just set the tone as to where my interest was at. My um, my mom had enough with my, my eldest brother boxed. He had a few amateur fights. And my mom's like, none of, none of you are to box. So I always stayed active in the gym, sparring my dad's kids, helping out, you know, the, the amateurs he had coming through. But I always respected my mom's orders. So I played Aussie rules football instead and ended up completely brutalized from playing that. So I think I would have been safe for boxing. You know, I wound up with a, um, a C2 vertebrae fractured in my neck playing football. So I think I would have been better off boxing, you know. Uh, but like I said, I respect that. I always had a hunger to stay around the sport, learn the sport. A lot of my friends were involved in the industry. And it just kind of evolved from there that I just I kept setting higher and higher goals on the on the journalistic end. So I was like, you know, I want to I want to work as a correspondent for Ring magazine. Then I sent in a few stories to Ring, and it was like, okay, well, what's the next goal? What's the next goal? But I was always fascinated mechanically by how things ran on the business end of the sport. And you know, like I helped my dad out a bit, just training the fighters in the gym and that. But he was someone that. You hear it all the time and I see it all the time. He took like a, a 15 year break from training and he came back and the business had passed him by. So like all of his methods is great because they're old school, but they were so old school, just dismissive of sports science, everything in that regard, you know, but I still like a state active, learn his ways in the gym. And then, like I said, it was just more like on the business side, ticking over, ticking over. And then, when I was 17, I launched my own project online. So I, learned, I launched a website called Fighter Network. And I just thought like, what are, I just thought back then, what are the voids in the market? So you see, for example, like now we have respect. Say you've got guys like Willie Warburton and fighters like that. I'm more fascinated to hear their story than Floyd Mayweather's. Everybody knows Floyd Mayweather's story, but the journeymen, the people coming through, they never have a chance to tell their story. So I thought, you know what, I want to profile guys like that. I want to give them a voice. I want to give fighters a chance to write a column and publish them on the website. And then on the website, I added a section, which again, pre-Facebook and that, where everything was just on message forums. I added a section, boxes available for fights. And this is how foolish I was. I left it open. Like I, could, I should have just withheld the contacts and then acted as a broker, but I just put it clean. Like, you know, six foot, 175, uh, what the record is, what I'm looking for, and I just put their contacts direct. But what came out of that was a number of the fighters in third world countries just seeing I was running a seemingly successful website and asked me to manage them. I was like, hey, you know what? I can be a manager. It can't be that hard. And um, yeah, baptism by fire, as they say. That's, uh, God, that, that's so interesting, that, because... Matt, we talk a lot about how like boxing is one of these sports where I said at the start that there's, there's no real bar- barrier to entry in, in pro boxing to get into the administrative side of it. But what you do have to do is show initiative. You have to have ideas. You have to, you have to get something going for yourself. And then, and then when it happens, you have to you know grasp that, that bull by the horns and, and just ride the fucker for as long as you can. And and just, just hearing about Mike's kind of entry into it there is great, isn't it? Because, you know, as he said there, yeah, yeah I can manage fighters. I mean, how, how hard can it be? I mean, you've, <laughs> you've done that job and you came into it from a slightly, slightly different angle, but it explains a lot, all the stuff he told us there, didn't it? It explains a lot. 
Yeah, I mean, we, when we started this podcast, me and you, Andy, we, we said, look, everyone in boxing has got a story, whether it's Floyd Mayweather or, like you say, Peter Buckley, the journal, everyone's got a story, how they come in, what way it went, you know, and, 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 and that's what we wanted to do. We just wanted to explore it, we wanted to get chatting. You know, every every episode, we, we try and think of something different. And, you know, Mike talking there about how he come through, the interest, the obsession, how he loved it, fell in love. Then he went this, then he done this. That led to this. Paths lead to paths. As long as you keep moving forward, opportunities come to you. <laughs> and sometimes you look back and you, you, you can never you can never connect the dots looking forward, but you can always connect them looking backwards. And, you know... It, what he says there about the business side of things as well. It's like, you know, the amount of people, there's so, there's so many people involved in boxing that, are, that that have been involved, immersed in it as a trainer or whatever. And they, they know what they know, but they've just never really got their head around the business side of boxing. There's a lot of people that just, you know, they've been in boxing 25, 30 years, good, good trainers even, but business side of it, just don't really get it, don't understand it. It can be quite complex at times and it can be simple at others, but... Um, <laughs> I'm just laughing listening to my journey there as well. You know, it, it, about there being a chameleon, you, you, you've got to, you have to, it's, it's an ever-changing, as we know, Andy at Sky as well, you know, the, the Zone deal, uh, there was the pay-per-view, HBO were running things. I mean, it, it's an ever, it's constantly changing landscape. So you have to kind of move with the times. You have to constantly be evolving. Um, Peter Nelson, Actually, I'm just going to go off on a tangent here, but will, I'll come back. <laughs> so, Peter Nelson, you, you listen about the, the journeys of knowing the game and meeting people. Peter Nelson, I think, just started writing a website about boxing. Then he, then he, then he met Freddie Roach, started writing Freddie Roach's book. Through through that, and you know, doing many hours in the wild card and doing interviews and getting to know to research to write the book, he ends up getting a job at HBO. Then he ends up running HBO. Then he almost in that role was basically number one matchmaker putting the fights together saying which ones HBO would pay for and wouldn't like you know that's a journey I mean that was a journey that rose pretty quickly to the stop in retrospect but actually you break it down it was probably 10 years in the making so you know maybe maybe Michael be chief quality control manager at the zone in five years who knows <laughs> I wouldn't rule it out I wouldn't rule it out so so Overseas fighters start getting in touch with you, asking you to manage them. You think, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can give that a try. And so what happens then? Did all of a sudden, are you are you flying here, there and everywhere? I mean, you... No, no, I'll tell you. So the first fight, I, I signed the kid out of Uganda and it was like, it was like a $100 signing bonus that our Western Union did. I remember like getting my head around, I had to send him the money and then not realising that Western Union back then came with like a $30 processing fee. So I had to scrounge up the $30, send it to him, because I only like I had the clean hundred. That was it. Send him the money. Within a few weeks, I booked him a fight in Germany. So I got I got on my hustle. I annoyed everybody. Like I've I've got guys still now that reach out to me. Sometimes people run into me at an event and they're like, they're like, you're young. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, I spoke to you, it had to be at least 20 years ago. I'm like, I know, I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> and and anyways like so i booked the kid in germany and i was confident because watch the opponent the other guy you know your typical european style fighter this kid looked good and this will show you something about how fighters age which you guys know well if you watch footage of someone three years ago 
compare it to this week, there can be seismic differences every which way. They could have grown exponentially. They could have also re regressed considerably. I didn't realize how much this kid had regressed. So in five terms, he was completely shot to the high heavens, completely shot. So I sent him to Germany. Now I'm needing to hustle all day, every day, securing his visas, international calls, no calling cards, nothing, just falling off the house phone. Sent him to Germany for five grand. He gets whacked out in the third round, which I'm just like, how on earth did that, that happen? I couldn't compute it in my head. I uh, get stopped in the third round. I get my $500 at least. This is on 10%. And I was like, at least I made some money. About three weeks later, I hear my mum. She screams, when my mum says my full name, I know I'm fucked. She's like, Michael! I'm like, oh shit, this ain't good. Phone bill. She's like, how do you explain this? $1,800 phone bill. <laughs> and I joke, but it's probably the truth. It took me about three years to pay the phone bill off. Um, you know, I've had all my boxing operations, but it was good that I learned that way because I had to develop my skills. I think I was, you know, a lot of times when you step into things and you're young and you're fresh, you're cocky. And that's why, like, sometimes when I see new people come into the game and everyone's just dismissive of them, but the, the young, I'm like, you know what, they can mature and they can develop, you know, don't just write them off immediately. Because some, sometimes that cockiness, if channeled the right way, is what can fuel you towards greatness. Uh, like back then I was, I was all cockiness, no greatness. And I learned very quickly, you know, that, that happened. And I think probably the first seven or eight fights that I booked, I was like, it's like one and six or one and seven. And then the will started to turn gradually. So I had, um, I had one kid, one mascara from Panama. He got to number five in the world with the WBA. I worked a few fights with um, Tito Mendoza, who I, I grew up watching him on TV. So I was like, yeah, this is a guy I used to watch when I was 14 years of age. So I'm freaking out just the fact that I'm involved in his career at that point. He's a both out of Panama. And then I started, I had a good business partner in Guyana called Carwin Holland. And with Carwin, I started working with a few different fighters. And I had a kid called Leon Moore, who was a, it was a Bantam, super Bantam. It's like five foot 10, Southpaw. He was very good back then. He underachieved in his career for various reasons, but very good back then. And we developed him to number four in the world. And I remember calling everyone eagerly, telling them, you know, I've got this kid, he'll beat your fighters, he'll beat your champions. And I remember, um, so I got connected with Cameron Duncan. And I was saying to Cameron, I'm like, I've got this kid. This is a kid that's going to knock out Juan Manuel Lopez. This is when Juan Ma was like red hot. And he's like, well, why the hell would you want to do that? And I was like, what do you mean, why the hell would I want to do that? He goes, all right, Juan Ma's... He's Puerto Rican. He's a big attraction in New York. He brings TV. And he goes, and respectfully, your kid's from Guyana and brings nothing if he beats him. So he goes, you telling me he's a good fighter doesn't help. You know, and it, like, it's just little bits of advice like that from Cam back then, uh, from uh, Bob Spagnola, who's managed like 25 world champions, including um, the Tate brothers, the Canizales brothers, Austin Trout, guys like that. I learned a lot of my skills from guys like that. And then, you know, once I started working a bit more closely with top rank, um, Matt would know, like, Bruce Trampler is one of the sharpest minds in boxing history, period. To me, he's the best matchmaker, period. And start talking to Bruce about things like that, and he's reiterating what Cameron had told me about, you've got to protect the guys that build your markets. You know, what's if you've got an underdeveloped market, 
and you've got a star fighter from there, you've got to work away, work an angle to build and make them viable and sellable to promoters. Just screaming that you're the best fighter in the world ain't going to get it done. And I remember that years later when I was managing Billy Dibber's world champion and Spencer Fearon was screaming about Troy's being forever. I'm like, fuck you and fuck Troy. I've got no interest in you guys. Like, why, why, why do I need this Mongolian throwing bricks at Billy Dibb's head when that's my asset? You know what I'm saying? Like, so I learned, I, I was able to put into practice on the other side of that years later. But like those early days, I learned the craft. And anyways, getting back to Leon Moore. So because of the success I had with Leon, I lost money on his career. But the success I had in being able to see him grow and see him build to a high world ranking. So like I said, got the number four in the world with the WBC. It put me on the radar with Cameron then put me on the radar with top rank so it opened up a lot of scouting opportunities and my first major assignment scouting was the 2008 Beijing Olympics so I headed over there for top rank so like once I got to that point then I felt like I could grow forward because even in Australia like I couldn't get a look in the first um the first seven eight years in Australia in the business I couldn't get a look in all not all but most of the people in the establishment did their absolute utmost to freeze me out. They just thought I was a cocky young kid who was going to go away. And then the, the irony of that is, you know, five, six later, five, six years later, a lot of them were coming back and asking me how they could collaborate or if I had job opportunities for them. So that just makes you realize you always got to respect people no matter what position or no matter what vantage point you have in the sport. Otherwise, the door will swing back and hit you 10 times harder. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. So what... When, when people first met you in person, when you first started traveling around, did you get a read on what they kind of made of you? Because you, like you said, you would have been a lot younger than they, than they expected. So you're speaking to these guys and arranging their fights and, and dealing with other managers and promoters and, and doing all of this stuff. And they would have assumed something about, about your background and how old you were. Do you think people were... I don't know, shocked or shocked almost by 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 who they actually no, then met. They were usually surprised. They were usually surprised. And look, I can sit here and lie and tell you that I always had everything together <laughs> throughout those days. All I need to do is do a deep search on my emails to look at how I, how I was wording things to see that there was a layer of brashness that needed to go away. And gradually that faded. Once once I got into like my early twenties, twenty two, twenty three started to kind of fade away where I was like I said just learning the business a lot better mechanically but the one thing I know and I've always been confident about is like you, you can you can dismiss whether you think I'm the man for a certain job or whatever but you can never dismiss my passion for the sport my passion for the sport burns like the first day that you know I wanted to go out and watch the fights and buy that magazine like that has never disappeared so that's the thing, like, I've always felt like, if anything, generally when I meet people, they're going to immediately feel the enthusiasm I've got for boxing. And I think that, that that can translate all ages, you know, whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever. I think if we're all truly in this business, we connect with that passion. Hey, 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 ki- hey, kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? 
I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! When I was working, uh, when I was managing Michael Conlon in 2017, um, I was working closely with Top Rank. And I remember I can't, we were going over to Australia for the Jeff Horn Pacquiao fight in Brisbane. And I remember Carmel Reddy saying to me, when you're over there, make sure you meet up with Mike Altamira. <laughs> um, you know, he's, he's a good guy, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I think that was the first time we met, was it, Mike? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. But I but but I had uh, I had rubbed you out of a payday with Asakainen. <laughs> yeah, yes. tell us about that. Yeah, so this is actually an interesting story. So I'll, I'll dial back first, and then I'll come back to that one. Um, yeah, you're lucky I'm even speaking to you. I, I, I swear, <laughs> all you, all you guys in British media, Aaron Barker beats up half of my friends. You rob me of a payday, Andy Clark. I'll get to Andy in a second. I'll get to Andy at the end, right? So I'll go through you first, Matt, then I'll go to Andy. So I used to play this, this boxing game. It was literally called boxinggame.com. And I was playing this when I was like 14, 15 years of age, where it's just a simulated boxing game. You create, you create your fighter, you give them whatever name, you, know, you, you build them the way you do, you implement your strategies. So there's a trainer on there, and his name is Petu BD Pajam. And me and this guy, like, we connected really well, but I knew he was like... 10 years older than me, uh, we connected really well, like always talking about boxing, fighters from his country. So he's from Finland. Talking about fighters from Finland, fighters from Australia. We get trading tapes and things of that nature. When he realizes that I'm building behind the scenes in the sport, he asked me if I'll work as the international agent and matchmaker for his company. And the two primary talents that they had at the highest level to come through their company were Dennis Shafakov and Amin Asakainen. So when Asakainen came over to boxing, so I believe he had like a, a bit of a kickboxing background, limited amateur pedigree, like it was exciting because he was, you know, say when he was 10, 12 and 0, we were seeing that he was developing rapidly. And then he beats Sebastian Sylvester and we thought all the worlds were gonna open. You know, you fight Stern for the world title. Back then, you know, there was big paydays around middleweight, still is, but it was a very, very open. You know, you didn't need a name, say, like you do now to fight a Canelo or Golovkin, whatever it may be. And it was disappointing because he had a rematch clause with Sylvester. We're confident he wins it. He loses the fight to Sylvester. Then we have a next opportunity against Corin Gevel. You know, between that, he beats Yuri Boyd Campus. He fights Corin Gevel. If he gets past Gevel, guaranteed world title shot. That gets scuttled. So then, 2009, we're in a beautiful position with him where you know, I say to Petri, my advice is let's just keep him ticking along. Just need one more solid win. And then I got Cali Pavlik in December for him. So Cali Pavlik ended up fighting Miguel Espino. And Petri tells me, sends me a message, says, we have the fight with Matthew Macklin. We are very confident we'll win this. And uh, Matt, I'd watched you with Jamie Moore. I'd seen you bounce back a few fights, but I'd still ridden you off from that contest, being completely honest. You know, I think like a lot of people in this sport, and it just shows that one loss isn't the death knell of somebody's potential or their future. 
because you know you come back with a vengeance after that and what was it like two minutes if that within two minutes you completely obliterated asakine and then you obliterated the 50 grand i was going to make for the cali public kill but that's the sport you know that's 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 the way the sport is and um you know like the more than that put me hot on following your journey so then you know when because you crushed uh our scene how many years after that the 2000 and that was on the 2012 that was on the Sergio Martinez yeah. Julio Cesar Chavez card yeah that, and that put and that put you in line for some real paydays but like I remember when you got to fights like our scene and that I was like you know this guy's the real deal you know even um I remember a lot of people were picking uh was it Lamar Russ a lot of people were picking him to outbox you and you know we knew your level like I knew it probably better than most because you know, it is like a lot of people say in, in the US scene, especially back then, very dismissive of, um, of British fighters. Back then, very, very dismissive attitudes. But I, I, I knew you had, you had genuine power, knew you are a hell of a fighter, and you showed it. You crushed, you crushed my payday when I needed it. You know, that, <laughs> that would have paid my bills back then for about two years, but that's the way it goes. You know, um, that's the beauty of the sport is, you know, for, for you, that probably is a win that would have injected and seen your confidence along at the highest level. So that's that layer of it, you know. Now, Andy, I'm not going to forget you. So first time, first time I meet Andy, I literally, I stole in. So I was in um, some Carter Flails, right? I stole in for the MTK branded event out there. Literally, I've been in the venue 40 seconds. I don't really know who's fighting on the bill, nothing because I've been traveling frenetically the previous three weeks. And um, Lee Eden says to me, Mike, can you do a bit of commentary? I'm like, yeah, when? He goes, right now. I'm like, okay. Literally, sitting next to Andy, didn't say a word to him. He didn't say a word to me, nothing. We just start talking on air. First line out of Andy, he starts talking about Windsor Park a few weeks earlier and about what a fantastic performance it was for Carl Frampton, what a fantastic night it was. I'm like, not for me. I managed Luke Jackson. <laughs> he had stopped in the ninth round. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That was a wild night in Cardiff. There were all sorts happened that night. Did someone rip their glove? The top rope snapped. There was, there was a ambulance gone. Ambulance gone twice. Yeah, there yeah, was an it, opponent stuck at, at the airport, a Nicaraguan opponent stuck at the airport, and Lee couldn't get them released, so he had to try and find everybody last minute. I remember seeing him when I walked into the, when I walked, he was the Vail Arena, I think. I remember seeing him when I walked in, and um, and uh, I just said, yeah, tough couple of days, mate. And he just looked at me and just shook his head and just said, I've just <laughs> never known anything like it. I mean, you've you've been on the inside of those kinds of uh, situations. Um. I'm sure. I mean, it can get, God, things can get completely out of control at times, can't they? Things oh, can I've, happen. I've got a better one. I've got a better one. We, we, had, we had an event in Townsville years ago, Townsville, Australia. And we knew that the promoter was struggling with the money, but we didn't know how much he was struggling with the money. First three fights go through seamlessly. Uh, everyone's under firm instruction. Do not walk to the ring until you receive your purse. So... The next three fights on the card, there was a delay of about an hour and a half between them. They were trying to sell enough beer to raise the revenue to cover the purses. <laughs> by, the by the time they got to the pointy end of the card, that idea fell off a cliff. 
Yeah, because it was um, the main event was uh, Victor Oganov versus Peter Karayuki, and I think there's about 30 grand in purses on that fight. So, you know, when you, when you have 300 patrons, you ain't selling 30 grand in beer to cover that. But, you know, like, that was hectic. I had another show. We literally all rolled up to the venue and the promoter no-showed. He came in, came in, seen what the crowd was. So he had hired a venue, 5,000-seat venue, and there was about 100 people in there and did a runner for about three months. So then it just left it amongst all of us, like, what do we do? I remember that show. I had a kid from Nigeria and a kid from uh, Uganda in Australia for the event, and I was like, you know what? No one pays me enough to absorb all of this shit. You know, like I was, I was like 22 years of age, and I was just thinking, like, my reputation is going to be torched out of this, even though it's not technically your fault. But you brought those guys from the other side of the world and sold them on the opportunity, and then they're going to go back home empty-handed when you know so much of their hopes and expectations are predicated on that sport, on on the purse, you know, on that opportunity. Like so many people in our sport, and it's it's nothing against it. It's just the way it is. They live paycheck to paycheck, especially in developing countries. So imagine you bring them, you know, from the other side of the globe, they weigh in, they get ready, and then they come to the fight venue. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, you're not fighting anymore, mate. The promoter's done a runner. You know, it's it's rough, but it, it, it's, you know, it's part of the territory. It's, it's a reason why when you meet and you find quality people who are reliable in this sport, you hold on to them. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Yeah, absolutely Matt. I mean, like we talk about this a lot, don't we? That that I think in boxing more maybe than in, in most industries, it is it is difficult to work out who you can trust, who's a straight shooter, who's going to tell you the truth more often than not. You're not going to get many people who will tell you the truth all of the time. I remember talking to Mickey Helliot about this about five or six years ago. Mickey, Magnus Take listeners, most of you will recognize the name. Some of you might not. He's a promoter manager around the, the London scene. Great, great bloke. And he just said to me one day, um, I said, what's this guy like? And he just said, well, he's just one of these people who he's a good enough guy, but he's just, he said, he's just incapable of telling the truth and he'll just lie pointlessly. You'll ask him what the time is and it'll be bang on midday and he'll tell you it's five to or five past. Now that lie doesn't have any consequences, but he just can't tell the fucking truth about anything. <laughs> you get- I, know a few, I know a few people like that. <laughs> But but that's what you have to kind of contend with, isn't it? You have to like so Mike there, he's got to he's got to early on, it, you know, when you're young and, and everything's, you know, it's, it's it's just to work out, isn't it? Like who who is, what gender have they got? Why are they telling you something? It's kind of what we were talking to Chris McKenna about last week. But you've got to crack onto that nice and quick, or you will get burned to the ground. Yeah, I mean, there's people looking, I suppose in any business, but I think particularly boxing where it's so global and, and so kamikaze in so many ways, having a good name and keeping that good name is is key. And and it, and it 
it's who you are anyway, but if you're one of those good people who's got integrity, you tell the truth, you're honest. Look, you're managing a fighter, you want your guy to win. Of course you do. But if you say the guy's going to be 75 kilo, make sure he's 75 kilo. Or, or, or if there's a problem and something's happened, then he's not. Give them prior warning, let them know in advance. You know, it, it keeps your reputation good. That person knows then he can come to you he can deal with you again. He trusts you and you build that up. You know, trust takes a while to build, especially in boxing because everyone's skeptical and paranoid. But if you do build that name, you're a straight shooter. You, you know, you, you'll stay the course. All these cowboys that come in and pull a quick stroke here and there, they may think they get ahead, but their, their days are numbered straight away. They're not going to last long. You know, so I think, that, you know, telling the truth, being honest, being straight, you know, it goes a long way, especially in boxing where it's full of cowboys. It's, it's key. And, you know, Funnily enough, like I said before about Carl Moretti saying, you know, you've got to meet Mike, Mike Altamira. I was, you know, I wasn't that long retired, about a year or something. I was managing Michael and build, building a good rapport with top rank, good uh, uh, relationship there. And I said, look, you meet this guy because he's similar. He's, you know, he's, he's immersed in boxing. He's across the sport globally. You know, and he's, I, I think, I think there was that they reached out to you at one point, didn't they, Mike, and look to kind of bring you on board as part of their team. Yeah, well, a few times over the years, we had a lot of discussions back and forth. And, you know, like I did I did scouting at three consecutive Olympics for him. So 2016, I was busy at home. So I had uh, two events in the span of two weeks. And then I had other travel uh, upcoming. So I opted not to go to Rio, but I worked it remotely. You know, so mm-hmm. like, for example, one of the main accounts that I sent him notes on was Conlon. And I mean, it's not a stroke of genius. So I told him after after what transpired at the Olympics, it's like do whatever you need to to sign this kid, you know. Like, but I mean, they it's just like you said, you build a rapport, you build a trust over time. They they value your perspective. So, like, I worked those three conse- uh, consecutive Olympics. The thing on my side, on the business side of operations, is like, which I guess, and this is where you need awareness sometimes. You know, sometimes you know, like. In my head, and where it's detrimental at times, I could be living off ramen noodles, but I'll turn down a huge payday because I feel like it doesn't fit with where I believe I potentially belong. You know, and then back then, and then I'm like sitting home, struggling, you know, no social outings, nothing because I've got no money income. And I'm like, yeah, well, maybe you got a bit too much pride. But I always felt like if I just stuck to, my core beliefs of where I could be most effective in the business, it would be rewarded. And so with Top Rank back then, when things were discussed at times about, you know, would you come on board as like, say, a junior matchmaker? Would you move to Las Vegas or that? It's like, in my head anyways, I was like, I believe I belong at an executive level. Like, so if I stay independent, I can build to that level a lot more intelligently, build stronger, learn more, learn my craft better, and if I go and start there at this level, I might get stuck there. It might take me many years to advance. So I always enjoyed the freedom to be a mercenary and to go and work wherever I need to, but to do it respectfully. You know, it wasn't ever to go and do it to, to spite a particular brand I'd work with or to try and be detrimental to their successes. But, yeah, I mean, with, with Top Rank, I'll always have respect because... You know, back in 2008, they accorded me that opportunity to go and scout at the Olympics. And, and that was huge. A lot of people don't realize, but like, so out of those Olympics, I signed Paul Fleming in Australia. And that helped me completely turn the game on its head in Australia 
for my own management brand. Because before that, it was very hard to get a look in. You know, it was very much a, a boys club, small, small country mentality and that. And I guess w- when you're young and hungry, a lot of people feel intimidated. But once I'd come back from scouting and people seen that I was on the radar internationally and that, the opportunities started to really warm up. They started to present themselves. So I've always got that gratitude. I've still got a great rapport with the team there. Like I said, I think... Now, if I if I got to go to one two, I think I think Bruce Trample is the greatest matchmaker of all time, and I think uh, Brad Goodman is the second greatest matchmaker of all time. I've never seen anyone on the cusp of cardiac arrest trying to get the perfect four round opponent like Brad is, and he's a massive stress head, and he drives you absolutely insane when you're working with him. But it's because the guy cares about developing what's his, what's in front of him. Whereas you know, sometimes you see people they just match fights, they just do what's lazy. There's, there's a reason why their company has developed so many fighters out of the amateurs and they've evolved into world championship talent. It's got all to do with the development. And to me, that's the most important thing. Like I remember uh, Bob Spagnola said to me years ago, you know, because he um, he managed Lou Savarese and he built Lou to whatever he was, 35, 36 and 0, all the way to fighting George Foreman. And he said, to me, people used to call me and say, oh, well, when are you going to test Lou? When are you going to step him up? When are you going to put him in a fight? He's like, I know the kid can fight. I don't need to prove it every time he's inside the ropes. You know, so you have your necessary opponents to develop talent, to nurture him. You, you tick the boxes. You put him in with a lefty. You put him in with, a, with an awkward guy who, who throws wide shots, don't jab. You put him in with a good technical boxer. Put him in with someone that comes all guns blazing with no defense. You've got to mix up the styles that they see on the way up. That's how you develop them accordingly. And, raise the stakes, you raise the level of the opponents incrementally. A lot of people in the sport are in a hurry. It's like as if they're they're in a rush to get to the end goal and they don't build the development. I'd rather take 15 to 18 fights and get the kid there safely and fast track him in 10 or 12 and and get him rolled at a regional level where it doesn't need to happen because I've been overzealous and overenthusiastic. And and that's where Top Rank, I think, is the best promotional company on earth. Because they trust in their matchmaker's instincts. Anyone can build a record, but building a fighter takes a lot of time, care, and expertise and experience, like, like you yeah. said there. And I think with, with Top Rank, with Conlon that time, I remember thinking, you know, you're 25 years old, you, you, you're probably going to have to be fast-tracked, but maybe be as, maybe you're not going to be ready to move as fast as what you want to move. So... But I know that these matchmakers will know exactly how quickly to move you. They'll know what you're ready for and what you're not ready for. And, and it is, you said there, Brad Goodman, stressing out over a four-rounder. And most people don't even get stressed out at all over a four-rounder. They just make a match where he's thinking about it. Is this the right opponent? Is he going to extend him? Is he going to test him? Is he going to be a blowout? Do we want a blowout? Do we need his confidence being built? There's, there's so much that has to, thought process that has to go into it. But I've got to say as well, Mike, you've got to throw Russell Peltz into that conversation of the best matchmakers Absolutely. and ones that have gone past that not with us anymore. Dan Chaga and, and Mickey Duff were, were right up there as well. Oh, definitely. I mean, there, there's so many. And that's why, like, when it, when, it, when a lot of young kids come to me these days and ask me for advice, you know, Don Majeski, another one who's still active. You know, when young kids ask me, for, Johnny Boss is another one. Uh, you know, like, I tell them, like, immerse yourself in knowledge, respect boxing history. There's so much you can learn from your predecessors in this game. You know, if, if you think a matchmaker's role is to look fanciful, you know, fanciful, sorry, 
in a sports jacket on TV, then you're completely fucking misguided. You know, like learn your craft, learn how to learn how to develop fighters, learn styles, because you can always you're always going to make mistakes, but you should always be looking to evolve. See, a lot of people come in the game now and they want status immediately. You've got to put your head down. You've got to learn. You've got to build. You know, if you you know yourself, if you're building a house, you build it from the foundations. So you want to build from the foundations so that when you get that layer of success, it's gonna it's you're gonna stay strong, you're gonna stay tall. You know, you gotta like, pay your dues. Yeah, exactly. And and build that knowledge base. Like, like I said, I mean, when you when you look at boxing historically. The past always reflects the future. So you've got all the intel there. You don't have the future there, but you've got all the intel there historically. So immerse yourself in it. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways and have a ton of fun we're recruiting you we are the one stars which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like joey chestnut evander holyfield bobby hurley jenny finch ryan lochte montel jordan new guests every week compelling interviews that you want to hear check us out wherever you get podcasts one star recruits I couldn't agree with that more. It's amazing how often people ignore the evidence, actual evidence of the past when they're trying to predict what's going to happen in the future. And, and as you said there, that knowledge base is it's absolutely critical. And you've, there are no shortcuts to that. You just have to put the hours in and, and build it. it. It reminds me of a quote I read in uh, The Years of the Locust, which is a book about Tim Anderson uh, and Rick Parker. If, if I've mentioned it before, I think if people haven't read it, then... I won't tell you any more than that. Just go and get it. The years of the locust. It's really, really good. And somebody in that just described boxing. And this has always stuck with me as a naked eye universe. And what they meant by that was that you can only really trust what you have seen with your own eyes. You will have other people you trust and you will take their opinion. But the best thing by far is to know that something happened because you saw it. And with matchmaking in particular, that is that's it, isn't it? You can talk about fighters at Beijing and London and Rio because you saw them. And there's no substitute for that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the other thing is too, that like I see sometimes that where people get confused is I think that there's certain tiers, certain skills to matchmaking that play into management. But management entails so many different factors, you know, which, you know, yourself, you essentially, you're an unofficial psychologist. Uh, your athlete you needed to act as an intermediary at times between the trainer and the athlete to hold that relationship together between the promoter and the athlete because you have to know you have to have the balance as a manager to know sometimes a promoter might speak to you out of frustration of where the athlete's at but you have to know what to hold back on that and what to what to um pass onwards to them you know if they if a promoter is frustrated with the athlete's progress you're not going to sit down with the athlete and be like, such and such doesn't feel you're developing at the right rate because that's going to bewilder them. You know, but like all those things instinctively come with experience. And, you know, like on the management side, you're always stressing, you're always worrying, you always want to like, you know, to me anyways, one of the ultimate goals when I sit down with a kid and sign him is 
they leave the sport better than when they turned over and with their, with their health completely intact. And that's the funny thing that you go to bed with that stress on your shoulders every single night. You worry every single night because you always, you know, you think about, okay, you know, whatever damage you're going to incur in ring, how's that going to carry them, you know, onwards from their career? Because if you've seen those signs of damage in the latter stages of their career, it's already too late. So you've got to kind of know the right time to advise them, you know, know how to oversee, how to hold them together, how to keep them away from bad habits. You know, so many of these kids, the biggest damage they do from themselves is away from the ring. It's got nothing to do with sparring or with sport or anything. It's all, once they have the release of fighting, the extracurricular activities. So it's like having that balance of then, you know, feeling like they can come to you for advice and talk to you about that because you don't want the kid down and out and then petrified to come and tell you what's actually happening in his life because then you can't make a difference either. But it's, uh, it's a tricky job, I'll say that. Oh, no, managing a fighter, as Mike has said there, and it's the most important role because you have to know a lot about everything, but maybe not, you're not, it's like, it's, I don't know, it's like a bit, let's say a project manager on a building site, he's not a bricklayer, he's not a plasterer, he's not doing the groundwork, but he's coordinating everything. So he has to have an understanding of everything, the time scale, when that's got to happen. It's like in boxing, you know, he's got to, he can have an open and frank conversation with the trainer, but you've got to be careful. You don't want to hurt your fighter's feelings or knock his confidence. It's like you said about the promoters, they're getting frustrated. He's not moving as quickly as we'd like. I'm not going to go and convey that literally what they said because that might knock his self-belief, which is, you know, I don't want that happening, whatever happens. So, you're, you know, you're managing their expectations. You're trying to get the message across to him without knocking his confidence. You know, you, you, you're dealing with a lot of things. You're dealing with a lot of stuff. You're managing a lot of things and you need to have enough cop on, to have enough filter to say things in the right way. Yeah, absolutely. How, how, do you find, how do you find people around fighters to deal with? Because sometimes you might pick a fighter up when they're young, maybe from the start of their career, and you're really the only person who's, who's showing an interest and, and their trainer is as well, of course, or at least certainly you would, you would hope so. Then they start to do well and then maybe there's a few more people who kind of who materialize and start trying to have their say maybe family wants to get more involved maybe they always have been but but they can be difficult you know you how's all of that yeah the, the great Keith Ellis boxing trainer is actually Lester's um, older brother he passed away a few years back but the great Keith Ellis once said that boxing's the only sport that you could put your you could put your fighter in a taxi and before he's arrived home, the taxi driver who he's never met is his new advisor. And it's <laughs> quite, it's one of those things that what's worrying is that every fighter tells you that they want to keep things tight. But you, Matt, you know better than anyone, brother. When the accolades start coming, when the spotlight starts coming, it's a lot harder to hold it together than what people think. And everybody responds responds differently because you can teach a kid how to box. You can teach a kid how to invest his money. How do you teach a kid how to handle success? Everyone reacts differently with their makeup, with their temperament. You know, like, you, yeah, you could, you could be a kid that's from the suburbs. And now because you're one of the best fighters in the world, the biggest pop star in the world wants to be your friend. 
the biggest female pop star in the world wants to sleep with you. How do you hold that together? Everyone wants to be your mate. Everyone wants to buy you a round of drinks. It's about having the right support networks and right structures around you. But as a manager, there's only so much you can do because the more you try to control someone's movements, the further they're going to drift away from you, the more that they're going to, they're going to do that behind closed doors. So it's like you need to have that balance of having a layer of respect with the athlete where they, they, they trust, they respect your judgment, but you also got to trust the instincts too. And it's, it is tough because everyone handles it differently. The main thing is just trying to keep their heads focused on the fact that, you know, consistency is key in life, in everything in life. Soon as you, soon as you're inconsistent, that's when that's when you can derail very, very quickly. But yeah, I mean, I've had some doozies in my time. You know, I had, um, you know, with uh, the time I was working, say, with Isaac Dogbay. You know, we started early days. It was uh, three or four people. By the time I got to you know, the world championship fights, there was 35 people walking to the ring with him. Just what can you do? You, you have your voice, but sometimes you're not heard, regardless of how how strong or how vocal or how respected you seemingly are in that camp. And you had to walk away from, well, you felt that you walked away from that one in the end, I guess, because maybe you, you felt you weren't really being listened to. Um, when that happens, uh, it's bound to have happened on other occasions, I would imagine, just because of the nature of the of the sport, what, how do you, how, how does that parting happen? How, how do you like to do it? Do you, do you, do you try and sit them down and just say, listen, we've come to the end of the road here. I'll explain to you why I still want the best for you. Just listen to these few things I'm going to tell you before I go. Well, it depends. That's ideal. That's ideal world things. Generally, when people at that point, ain't nobody can tell them anything. So <laughs> it's usually explosive on the exit, no matter how calm you are. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe a year or two later, it cools down, and then you can sit and have a rational discussion. But in that moment when you're leaving, you're usually leaving from a very frustrated vantage point. And uh, you, you know, it takes uh, it takes a lot of calmness to be able to sit and convey yourself in that way. You know, because it's. It's out of frustration because if you genuinely care as a manager, you always want the best for who you're representing. And it's, you know, like, so to walk away, you know that you're just not being heard and you, you can't have a positive effect on the situation. You know? Yeah, so I mean, if you it, feel like, Mike, if you feel like you're not being heard and it's starting to turn into a circus and you don't really have a control on the situation, even though you don't, you, you know, you can't be a control freak because that doesn't work. If you try and tighten the grip, you just, you know, you push them further away, but you, you're trying to keep a handle on the situation. You're trying to manage everything and you can see it going to shit basically because too many people are coming in. There's too many voices and you can see that the lunatics are going to start to run the asylum and you start thinking, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't want to be a part of this anymore, but I know if I walk away now, and I am going to walk away now because I value my time and my integrity and everything, my, my, belief, my principles and what I believe in. But the fighter at that point is probably too far gone and he's probably going to feel like you've left him or abandoned him or that you're trying to, yeah. you know, he's not going to take the constructive criticism as constructive. He's just going to take it as criticism. Absolutely. And the thing is too, like I said, if you generally arrive at those places, you're not in a calm temperament on your side. Yeah. You know, as, as much as, like I said, you want to, in an ideal world, you want to sit down rationally and have that discussion. 
probably already attempted that discussion on 15 occasions and been dismissed, which is why you're just at the point of saying, you know what, I'm done. Like the, the one thing I can say on my side is, look, we all have, we all have our own personal egos in business. I don't have the ego in my life ever that makes me think I have to hold on to this account if it's not right for me. And I see that sometimes with people that they just, they desperately hold on to an athlete almost for relevance, almost to be seen, whatever. Like I've always been confident that you could take everything from me today and I'm going to start rebuilding immediately. Not even tomorrow. I'm going to start rebuilding the next minute. I'm not going to sit and feel sorry for myself or complain about anything. I'm going to start trying to build towards saying greater, you know, like, so because I've always had that temperament and I guess that little bit of self-assurity and confidence, I haven't allowed myself to go too far in those situations. If I just see that it's not particularly working or I'm not particularly happy, I'll have a few conversations and then, you know, life is precious. I mean, every, every second that passes in the day is another second we're never going to get back. So, you know, that's why I just look at it. I want to enjoy my time in this sport. I love this sport. I never want to become jaded. I don't want to be, I don't want to become one of those people that, you know, talks about, oh, well, back in my day, the fighters were like, no, I want the current day fighters I'm working with to be the way they've got to be, you know, and I, I believe we can all have the right kind of impact. And I do believe that there's the right people and the right kids out there. They just need to be nurtured a bit different nowadays because, you know, again, Matt, when you were coming through as a fighter, it wasn't, it wasn't social media the way it is now. Towards the tail end of your career, there would have been, but the way it is now, like these kids are growing up in a completely different era. So you have to adjust how you speak to them. You have to adjust how you deal with them because they accessible. Look how accessible they are to trolls. Look how accessible they are to the trash talk from rival opponents or whatever it may be. You know, look how accessible they are to other. You know, you know the fighters I manage. How many times they get inboxed by people trying to poach them. You know, there's so many different layers that are added to the sport now. You just got to adjust, do your best, and just hopefully, you know, whatever input you have is a positive for whoever you're working with, and you feel good moving forward. That's the main thing. Yeah, it's hard work being a being an athlete these days. Any kind of public figure, because as you say, the the criticism is there on on tap, and and so is the praise, and and praise can be for all the reasons you've just outlined there, that can be just as damaging to an extent because it'll turn somebody's head and, and all of a sudden they're, they're, they turned into a different, a different person. Um, another aspect of the boxing business is the fact that it is small and you try and do things the way you want to do them. And as much as you can, you want to deal with people who you feel display your own qualities or, or ethos, um, but that's not always possible. I mean, you must have had instances where you've dealt with someone and you've just thought, right, you are a fucking snake. I never yeah. want to deal with you again. But then at some point in the future, you're probably going to have to. I mean, how we, we, are, we were talking to John Pegg about how do you do that? How do you just navigate this landscape without taking anything too personally? Because if you did, you would lose your mind. I mean, that, that to me has always seemed like a, a difficult thing to do. You walk into a room or you get wind of a deal and you just think to yourself, fuck, I'm going to have to deal with that guy again. No way around it. I'm going to have to. Yeah, I mean, and, and I've had those situations. I remember probably, when was it? 2012, Billy Dibb was preparing to fight um, 
Eduardo Escobedo, mandatory defense of the IBF world title. And he was playing Sharif Bogheri in Las Vegas. And anyways, I didn't realize, but you know, he spars Bogheri 12 rounds. The guys from the other side of the ring. So I didn't have my glasses. I'm super short-sighted when I don't have my glasses. Guys that were sitting on the other side of the ring walk over and start trying to speak to me. One of them was an athlete that tried to split on a contract and we ended up securing a buyout for. The other two were the people that torturously interfered with my contract. And it was like, in that moment, it was like, first thing I wanted to do was like, bang, 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 throw three of the best right hands in my life and run. <laughs> because you just, it conjures all that emotion of like, you know, I wanted the best for the kid. And, you know, these guys did what they did for whatever intention, but, you know, so rude and so disrespectful, but I held it together and I was just like, hey, I'm like, I'm not going to shake your hand because I've got no respect for you, but, you know, we're okay beyond that. <laughs> and, you know, like there's situations like that where it's just like, you know what, hold your ground, but don't be so driven by ego or whatever that, you end up just torching everything, you know, that you torch that gym forever, whatever. So it was just like, all right, be firm, say what I've got to say, but don't say enough that's going to trigger an all-in ball. Uh, <laughs> but in terms of dealing with promoters, I mean, look, there's guys like um, Vlad Hrunov in Russia, absolute nightmare to deal with. I'll say his name on record, I don't care. Absolute nightmare to deal with, but if there was a mandatory fight, say in the WBA, who predominantly works with, then we had to venture there. I just do my absolute best to hold it together. End of the day, it's about the fighter. It ain't about me. You know, so if I know what frustrates me is when you sit down, you look the fighter in the eye, and you tell them you're going to do your absolute best. And when you know you're dealing with people who, for one reason or another, with whatever fuckery they're trying to pull off, affects you doing your job to the absolute best year expectations for the athlete, whether it's that when they arrive, the hotel's being changed, whether it's that um, they trying to take them off for additional blood tests, medicals, whatever it may be, messing them around with per diem money, just the, the smallest of things, all that frustrates me because I feel like the athlete's being disrespected. But you just hold it together. You're right, it is a small community. But it also means that if it is a small community, word travels quick. So generally those guys like that, they don't last too long or they get flushed out pretty quickly. You know, like it's, it's just the way it is. You know, like you can pick and choose. And that's like a big part of the career decisions I've tried to make in recent years is just, I want to be able to pick and choose a little bit more who I deal with, unless it's somewhere where we need to venture to secure an athlete to best fit. You know, like, so, so say you've got an athlete on the open market. You're an, an big name, international, say an Olympic gold medalist. You're an absolute fool. If, say, you've got a deal from top rank, you've got a deal from matchroom, you're a fool to not speak to someone at PBC and see what can be presented there. Your job as a manager is to get the athlete the best deal. How do you know there's not a better deal there unless you, unless you venture there, unless you test the waters? I think sometimes in the sport, people get too caught up in alliances to one brand or another, and they don't go and push to the maximum to secure the right deals for the fighters. But, you know, generally those guys that you don't particularly enjoy dealing with, 
Nobody's going out of their way to work with those entities. They're the ones you just get you get stuck with in a mandatory situation or with a with a kid that is never going to secure an opportunity. You know, say if, like I said, Hrunov. Hrunov as a WBA world champion, you've got a British level fighter that can secure a shot at a world championship. He's never going to secure anywhere else. Take it because that's a kid's dream. But if you got Billy Joe Saunders saying Hrunov offers you a deal, hell no, you'd never go there. You do whatever you can to bring the fight over to your side of the pond. So yeah, I mean that's it. That's how I deal with it. Like fortunately, you know, I've been able to weed them out over the years. And you know, most of the people I deal with day to day in boxing are fantastic people. They make me they make me feel inspired to pick up the phone and get working. We do we do see these funny situations, Matt, don't we? Quite off well, we'll see them again when we get back to going to press conferences away and stuff. But sometimes we'll be standing at a way in. And you're just having a look around and you see two people yards away from each other. And you know that there's so much history there that if there was nobody else in the room, who knows what might happen. But this is this is the, you know, <laughs> that, that's how it is, isn't it? You know, Mike's put it very, very well there. You have to try and put your ego aside and get and get the the work done that you need, that you need to get done. But I'm sure that kind of thing happens in other industries, but but in this one in particular, that you can feel the tension sometimes. Oh, listen, it, it, it's always the thing you try and always remember is it's not personal, it's business. But in boxing, because of the blood, sweat and tears, it can feel very fucking personal at times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but look, holding resentments, grudges, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not going to bode well. And it, you just got to try and get over it all and move forward and try and see things from everyone's perspective best you can. Um, and just do, as long as you know you're, you, you, you're honest and you're, you're truthful and um, you're not pulling any strokes or doing anything underhanded, you know, and, and, but also know that just because you're that way doesn't mean other people aren't. So you're not, you're not going in like a fool. You're going with your eyes open. You, what you don't want to become in this sport, in this business is over cynical. Do you know? Yes. Keep your eyes open. Be aware, but you don't want to be over cynical because then you won't end up dealing with anyone. Do you know what I mean? And there's a lot of great people out there as well. Um, so I think that's the way you've just got to approach it. What What was it that, that I mean, we allude on the podcast quite often to the fact that, you know, you manage Michael Conlon, you're managing some some other fighters when you when you finish fighting. But but I don't think I've ever really asked, though, what was it that made you think that this, you know, this isn't for me anymore? Was it that you got asked to do more and more by Sky and you just thought, you know what, this is... This is really good fun and less, and less hassle. Uh, did you just feel like management was too twenty four seven? Look, there was a lot of reasons, really. Um, too many to go into on this, but um, I think ultimately at that point, you know, I'd only been retired probably what a year myself. I pro- don't think I'd even really processed my own career. I'd gone straight into managing Michael, I was in America, I was, you know, I was living out of a bag, literally. Um, you know, I was on a flight every week, and I'm talking long-haul flights, like six-hour flights, LA, New York, New York, LA, back then to UK, back, you know, I was on the phone to top rank, Eddie Hearn, you know, it was just mental, to be honest, and I think, it, I think I just hit a bit of a burnout, um, and I thought, nah, and I did have this thing with Sky as well, and it was, from, from at that point, it was the right thing for me to do because I think with the with the punditry work, I was still getting my fix within boxing. 
uh, and I was kind of getting the most from the least where I think that as good as the management thing was, I was being pulled in so many different directions. And I think especially because I hadn't even processed my own career and living out of a bag again, it was a bit, it was the right thing to do back then. That said, and I've even said this to you, Andy, if the, if the right kid came along, an ability would only be, you know, one area of that. Um, it's definitely something I'd look at again. It's Because, uh, listen, if you get the right kid and you get the right, uh, you know, he's listening to you and all the rest of it, you know, what a what an amazing fun journey. So, Mike, when it comes to when it comes to dealing with fighters, what's always struck me as being being interesting about being an international manager and an agent for higher profile fighters, then then it's easy to keep a track on uh, and what they're up to, and and they're in big fights, so you'll be confident that they will arrive on the weight and that they've done all their medicals and they've got their paperwork and all that kind of stuff. But further down the chain. Uh, and you kind of alluded to it earlier when when um, you were talking about how vital it is to see some up-to-date footage. Fighters, I mean, sometimes they can be fairly economical with the truth. I mean, you must have you must have <laughs> had guys who said, yeah, yeah, I'll be on the way. Don't worry, don't worry. And then you pick them up at the airport, look at them, and just think, oh, fuck. Like, he's nowhere near what he said he was. Or they don't have their scans. They haven't got their medicals. They, You know, there's a lot of that. I'll, I'll get back to your question in a second. But yeah, in terms of economical truths, I had one fighter have his brother many years ago call me up on his private number and state that he'd been kidnapped and they were trying to get me to Western Ransom. <laughs> so that's probably the most economical version of the, uh, <laughs> oh, the truth I've dealt with. But I, look, for me, I really think it comes down to your report. You've got a great rapport with your trainers, then you usually be solid, and that's why, like, I, I take I take my time to ensure that the athletes are going to be in the right hands. If you, I, I understand. Like, I never used to get it years ago. You know, when you see a certain manager work with like one trainer and they train like eight of their different fighters, I never used to understand it because I used to always think, you know, individuality, and I still do. Like, every fighter deserves a right to be in the hands where they feel the safest, where they can perform the best. But I understand why people have those comfort zones because it's what they can relate to. They know that the manager, you know, as a manager, they've got the right rapport. They can talk to that trainer. They're going to be honest with them. You know, like for me, one of them was um, was Billy Hussain in Australia. So I could know that, and Billy's two brothers, Nadal Hussain, Hussain Hussain, both fought for world titles uh, back in the day. Um, but like with Billy, I know if I can call him and say to him, how the kid's going in training, he'll tell me, no, he's been terrible this week. You know, he's got a and he's got a niggle, he's got a knee injury. The opponent you have him scheduled with might be a bit tough or whatever. It might, so then I can adjust. Well, I've sent a kid there and say, all right, how's he go with left-handers? And tell me, no, he's struggling. So then I just try and find the right left-hander that I know is not a threat to win, but that can give him a chance to develop and have one or two camps just preparing to fight lefties so that he's better when eventually he's going to have to run into that problem. But if you don't have the right rapport with the trainer, they can be counterproductive for your cause. So, you know, I think that's one. But what I said to you earlier about fighters, they have to respect you, but they can't be intimidated. They lie when they're intimidated. When they're intimidated that, oh, I'm going to get in trouble if I tell the truth. That's that's when the greatest lies will be. That's when it's, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm weighing 72 kilos and they're really 78 that day, you know. I had, I had one kid years ago, he was so petrified of his trainer. His trainer used to do weight checks. 
And so he, you know, he was fighting at 126, and the trainer would say to him, "Say, you know, I need you, you know, 140 pounds, so 63 and a half by this date." He would jump in a sauna that morning, take four or five kilos off, and go to training, make the weight, and then go and feast it up. Now, wouldn't it have been smarter if that kid just went in there heavy and the trainer knew where he was at? But it, because it was driven by fear, he, he was never honest about that. So then he didn't really get his weight under control. He was just crashing the weight every time he went about it. And I think that build those things, it takes time to build a rapport. You know, I think that like one, one thing I've learned, especially the last couple of years, is that if you're going to take on an athlete, you've got to prepare for a 10-year journey at, at a minimum. You know, and so you better know the character. Why not take, like, everyone's in a rush just to shove the contract in front of an amateur star for them to sign. Take your time to get to know the kid. Give it a bit of additional time. Don't, don't be so insecure thinking he's just going to sign with somebody else if you take an extra week. Don't try to always do it from afar. You know, jump on a plane. Kid wants to see initiative. Get there. Meet the kid. Meet the trainer. Meet the family. If there's a girlfriend, meet the girlfriend. Learn everything you can about that kid. Because if you do that, you can work your role most effectively. Then you can build over time. But a lot of times, you know, people rush in and then six, six months later, they're like, oh, I didn't realize the kid had a problem with this. I didn't know he was injury prone. You know, I didn't know that, say, he was, he was fatherless or whatever it may be. Like, learn your product in any other, any other field. You know, like, um, Andy, I'll give you a free chance to plug, right? Your wife makes these exquisite chocolate bars, right? From the, <laughs> from the ground all the way up, right? It would have taken her a long time to learn her field. You don't just, you don't just wait. And you, you long time to learn how to work with different products. You know, how's this cocoa going to mix? How are these flavors going to interact with that? It takes time. I don't get what the rush is not to take time to learn about the athletes. You know, like so many people in a hurry, just get it signed, get it signed, get it signed. Think about the next 10 years. Can you be effective the next 10 years? You look at the balance of probabilities, the chances in your likelihood of being affected, of being effective, are greatly heightened if you give yourself the time to learn about the athlete. Because you know what? You can maybe take the step back and say, you know, this kid's not for me. He's a fantastic talent, but he's not for me. Or you might look at it and say, you know what? I, be, I believe we can have the right tool with this kid. You know, like, like a, good, a good example of, of like an athlete I worked with in recent years uh, on the bounce back was Tasha Jonas. You know, like um, she's involved with her post uh, Viviani Obanoff when many people wrote her off. Went out there, sat with her for a few hours, got to know her mindset. And when everybody was trying to rush her straight back into a rematch with Obanoff, all of my advice was to take your time. She's going to be mentally fragile. It's going to take at least a year. It might take two or three fights to build her confidence back. All the skills are there, but to tap back into them and maximize them is going to take time. And in that time, I just made all the calls I could to her, check in with her, see where her mindset's at, and learn about her as a person before then you start taking them next steps of, okay, we're going to be ready for the world title. The world title, if you if you got a Ferrari, you're always going to be able to hit 200 kilometers. But if you fresh the engine before you even know how to drive it, you may never get there. But we see it so many times in boxing. We do. We absolutely do. We absolutely do. So before we let you go, I, I probably should have warned you about this before beforehand. Um, give us a couple of the 
strangest things that have happened to you in in boxing there's probably too many to to choose from but those kinds of situations where you're standing there sitting there thinking to yourself what is going on here i've got a few i had uh, <laughs> i had one one promoter in australia i won't name him because i don't deserve that respect but they were going and telling all my colleagues, they never told me directly, but they were telling all my colleagues that they'd taken a hit on my life. And that there was a particular event. They knew I was going to be interstate. I think I was supposed to be in Sydney. They knew I was going to be interstate because I had a bigger account booked on that show. But I also had an athlete fighting locally, but it was just like, it was like a six round fight locally. But the one interstate was like a title fight. Called my athlete in Sydney to explain the situation to, to him. Because this promoter was telling people that there was a particular event in Melbourne, and if I went there, that that's where I was going to get executed. So of course I went there. I was like, "Ain't nobody going to advertise if they're going to shoot you." So I went there, called, effectively called him out on it, but it, it took all the power out of that BS that he was trying to circulate. And then when people were coming to me and saying, "Are you going to do anything about it?" I'm like, no, because I value my freedom more than I despise any individual on this. You know, and end of the day, usually when people are saying them foolish things, it's bred out of insecurity. But it was funny because like then a few years later, he reached out to one of my friends and it was at a point in time where I'd just been blessed every which way I stepped. So I was probably in a good mood. And I'd had, um, had four fighters win world titles in the span of like four months. And my friend calls me and he's like, you know, this guy wants to break bread with you. What do you want to do? I said, I'm going to go, look, you can keep the bread, but I'm okay with him. Just tell him I'm okay. I've got no interest in breaking anything with him. That a few years ago, I would have broken multiple things over his head. Not anymore. Like I'm, I'm dusted with that. But I go, let, let him know we're cool. You know, but that's like, in terms of the bizarre, that's one of them. The, I told you, they, they, the faux call for ransom is another one. Uh there's been so many, you, you know, I mean, I, I put out a podcast about this uh, last year. I, I got double crossed by the Chinese government in a deal. So it was a, um, it was, it was a $10 million deal. And I, I wound up 130, it was like $134,000 US in debt, like personal debt, not, not, you know, so, and owed to my friends and everything. And I was, that was actually, it wasn't that long ago. That was in 2017. And I was, I was on the cusp of taking my life from all the stress and everything that come out of that situation and then managed to turn that around. I'm not going to give too many details of how we managed to, um, how we managed to retrieve the funds from Beijing. But, uh, you know, I had, I had some people over there looking over me, that's for sure. But that was just like, I mean, to get double-crossed by government, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, these guys were the organisers of, it's a Bayol group. They organized the Beijing Olympics. You, you, you think you're sank with government. But, I mean, that's amongst them. I mean, the show I was saying about in um, uh, years ago with the two African fighters on it earlier, that was also in Townsville. Townsville's like my... Townsville's a town I'll never revisit because I, I have PTSD. But, you know, like, I remember going over there, I was... Um, how was it? 22... And thinking, you know, I'm making five grand this week. I'm going to have two guys in the world top 10. Everything's going to be fantastic. I go to the airport to leave and my ticket was cancelled. So the promoter had booked it but never paid for it. 
he'd, he'd fled Dodge. And then I had too much pride because I remember before I left, my family saying to me, be careful. You don't know who you're dealing with. And, you know, being a cocky kid, I thought I was fine. And so I went back to the hotel and I slept in the laundry room at the hotel for one night. I was just, you know, trying to, trying to gather my head. And I wound up, I called one of my good friends from high school back home. And he, um, the irony of Western Union, uh, he, he sent me, he Western Union me $350 to buy a return ticket. And you know, I paid him back a few months later. But they're the storms that when, when you ride out those storms, you appreciate the good times that roll on in your life. Like, I look at that, like two years later, I'm at the Olympics scouting for top rank. You know, like fighters that, you know, another one, uh, Billy did. I remember there's a there's a kid out of that gym that I work with in Uganda. There's a kid called Michael Kizza, who, um, you know, when, when I went back years later and watched his fight, I think he fought Alex Arthur in the UK. He barely got feathered with the shot and he folded like a deck chair. So had I watched that, I would have known exactly what his quality was. But I brought him out to Australia, just booked him. I think I made five, 600 on the, on the fight, but just to help out the promoter. And then his trainer couldn't get there through late. So they said to me, can you help train in fight week? And I remember taking him on the pads and I'm like, oh, we're fucked. <laughs> this kid's got nothing. <laughs> and then checking his weight and he was... Um, he was fighting at 130, so 58.9, and he weighed like 57.2. And I'm like, okay, so I'm taking him to Porto, which is like similar to Nando's. I'm taking him to Porto every day, feasting him up, just trying to keep his confidence high. His trainer arrives in from Uganda fight day. So I'm like, all right, at least the pressure's off me. Fights Billy Did Billy Dib was maybe in like his sixth or seventh fight. And Billy did, but I remember as soon as first punch Billy lands, rattled him where he was on ice skates. And I'm like, oh man, this is just horrible. Billy stopped him in the second round. I remember when Billy knocked him down in the second round, I got waved off. He stood over him and did this. He did, he did like the slit in your throat. And I was like, I'm gonna get you one day, motherfucker. Like it's just like it was just one of those things that like, I'm gonna get you. Like, I'm gonna turn this around. This is where I'm at now, but I'm not gonna stay here in the game. I'm gonna get you. So two years later, I'm co-managing uh, five fighters at that time with Cameron Duncan. So Cam was on top of that time. He had, um, he had Callie Pavlik. You know, about a year later, he signed um, Terence Crawford. But at that time, he had Pavlik. He had Tim Bradley. He had, uh, who else? Uh, Nanito Donaire. And he had Stevie Lewebner. And Billy was signed to Golden Boy. And we knew for the great one, they were trying to cash him in for a payday. So I called Cam and I begged him. I said, Cam. I know I got no input on the webinar's career other than I co-managed some fighters with you. I said, I want input on this one, please. You have a voluntary coming up on the Hopkins and, um, and public card, please put Billy Dibb in with him. The is going to beat him. So the webinar beats Billy Dibb. What's the first loss on Billy Dibb's record? In my stupid mind, I felt vindicated. I was like, you know what? I got him back for slitting his throat over my fighter. About a year later, managing Paul Fleming, Billy Dibbs also training in the same gym with Billy Hussain. And Billy says to me, he goes, why, can we have a chat? And I was just like, you know, I was dismissive because I didn't like the kid, being honest. He goes, you know, why, can we, can we have a talk? Can I talk with you sometime? You know, I know you're knowledgeable. And so he said the right things to tap into my personal ego, I suppose. And sat there, chatted with him. And he's like, you know, what did you see with the webinar? just got talking about boxing and I started to soften to him and I thought 
you know what? He's actually a really good kid. Like this kid, he's one of those kids that it's like he's not complete if he never wins a world championship. And that drives his hunger. And that drives his love. And I respect that because he's an overachiever in life. So I started to connect with him. And then he's like, about six months later, we need to work together. I'm like, mate, we're friends, but I'm never going to work with you. Anyways, long story short, within a year, he's position number one in the IBF. Um, Gamboa misses a second day weigh-in against Orlando, uh, Orlando Solito. Billy gets ordered to fight Mikey Garcia. And I'm like, oh, we're absolutely that's a, that's a bad fight. You know, Garcia was red hot. He's a fantastic fighter. Cameron manages Mikey Garcia. Cameron owed me money. And, you know, the one thing Cameron's loved more than boxing in life, it's money and it's also retaining other people's money. So, <laughs> which is one of the reasons I eventually, you know, moved onwards and fell out with him. But he's, he's a wealth of knowledge, you know. I can, I can look at it personally and say, personally, I wouldn't, ever carry myself in that fashion but in a boxing sense he's a brilliant man and i said to him i go cam you owe me one like he's number one in the bo he's number one in um the ibf please just tell the ibf you're not going to take this fight he's like let me talk with robert let me talk to mikey as in robert garcia spoke to them took him out of my way next guy get on to sean gibbons and um sean was working with zanfra at the time let him match Jorge Lasieva and Beltran ASAP. So he matches that fight for the number two spot. So we had our, Billy did the number one, and then we had our opponent set. So we set that fight for July 2011. And to me, like, no matter what I've accomplished in my career, what I've accomplished moving forward, that to me is the most fascinating story. The guy slid his throat over my fighter that I at that point in time, for a microsecond, wish never existed in this earth, I wound up managing and guiding him to a world championship. And he's one of my best friends to this day. Matthew, that tells you everything about the beauty of our sport and how it can connect people, take him on a journey. And it's what I was saying earlier, you know, like never judge someone by who they are at a younger age because we all have the capability to overcome and rise and become better people as time evolves. That, I think, is a great place to leave it. That's a great place to leave it. Um, this has been really good fun. This has been really good fun. So hopefully we'll see you. We'll see you in person soon. Um, I'll yeah, be don't worry. I'm planning to come and steal some of your books. So we'll be fine. <laughs> see you soon. <laughs> Actually, just, just, um, just, just quickly, you've left the role recently at MTK um, after a sort of decent spell there. So anything... New coming up with you? Any kind of new ventures? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things is like, you know, prior to the working relationship with MTK, the previous three and a half years, like even throughout that tenure, it was a non-exclusive agreement. So I was always free to pursue whether, like I've managed fighters independently of the company, always free to pursue other business interests, things of that nature. But I feel like moving forward, I needed to set some of the goals and put primarily my focus on what I target. And, you know, like for me, it's just continuing to enjoy my time in the sport. I believe I can be an asset to any of the major promoters in the sport, whether in the, in the roles of scouting, consulting, like, you know, event by event, whatever it may be. But at my core strength, it's always going to be management. So, you know, the thing is, I've been in the management game since I was 17. So it's coming up on 21 years now. And I feel assured that 
you know, if I take on the wider counts from when they turn pro all the way through to world championship level and beyond, I'm confident in my capabilities. So a lot of it is just, you know, exploring what's out there. What I've realized in all of my business ventures to date is the ones that have never really played out the way that I was hopeful of are the ones that I made hastily. So I'm just making very smart, calculated decisions. When that announcement was published last week, when I put out the announcement about my, um, my movement onwards from the company, my DMs absolutely exploded. And even my WhatsApp phone calls, everything. So, you know, it, it gave the old ego a boost for a few hours, but then it's just back to business and it's just computing where I can be most effective, where I believe I can be an asset to the industry. And, you know, whatever inspires and motivates me. Like I never want to, like I said earlier, I never want to become one of those old jaded people in the sport, but I never want to fade into obscurity or irrelevance. There's people that were brilliant 30 years ago. And then you're like, why are they working with that athlete? Like, why are they, why have they lowered themselves? So you remember them in the highest esteem, but they're not what they once were. I don't want to become one of them. I want to give every piece of myself to the sport contribute however I can and when it's time to move on and retire hopefully leave a great legacy so you know I'm excited man I feel like I've got so much energy like I feel empowered at the moment feel rejuvenated feel alive I know you can hear it in my voice so I'm, just, I'm excited for what the next you know five ten years brings and then who knows by the time I get deep into my 40s you know maybe early 50s maybe I'll find the next challenge in my life but for now I'm totally enamored with the sport Great to hear. Great to hear. Uh, like I said, hopefully we'll bump into you. Bump into you soon. Thanks for doing this. Uh, thanks for doing this. Uh, hopefully you get out of lockdown in in Melbourne before before too long, and that everywhere really things get back uh, to something like the way that they that they used to be. Thanks for thanks for listening, everybody. As always, if you could get onto iTunes and give us a rate and a review, that would be great. Get over to YouTube too. Uh, haven't put loads of stuff up on there recently, but few more fights coming up over the next over the next few weeks um that'll crank up again uh i'm sure uh in the meantime take it easy everyone right, not that maggie back in town i said jenny diver whoa suit taught me look out to miss lottie and old Lucy Brown Yes, that light falls on the right, babe Not that Maggie's Back in Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.